Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 20th, 2021, and as so often, I'm speaking to you from my home in San Francisco in California. Uh, on the edge of Silicon Valley, sometimes I say I live in Silicon Valley, but the truth is I think I live on the edge of it, which is the best way, of course, to live when it comes to Silicon Valley. No one wants to live in it. They want to live on the edge, on this new uh, Silicon Valley, this home, this center, this global uh, climax of technological innovation. Sometimes people call it the new Rome, sometimes the new Athens or the new Greece. It's where everything seems to be changing. It's the home of innovation, for better or worse. Speaking of innovation, I was caught today by an interesting piece in the New York Times headlined, A Eureka Moment Recreated in Film. It's about a project that the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston is doing using modern technology to essentially reinvent Athens or remind us of the innovation of Athens. Um, the Times piece reminds us that uh, 2,500 years ago in an Athenian workshop, um, uh, the potter, a potter had, the, the maker of the, the pottery, um, had what they call a eureka moment. Um, he, and I'm assuming it was a he, uh, invented the color red, um, one of the great innovations of Greece. And they were supreme innovators, the original innovators, the pl platonic version of innovation. Um, and the Times piece features a lot of recreated, some of it recreated, some of it not, of um, Athenian innovation, including this um, image, um, a, a digital representation um, of uh, the goddess Athena uh, represented in, in digital form. Um, all this is, I think, relevant for uh, our discussion today, which is on not only innovation, but innovation in antiquity. It's a new book out, How to Innovate, an Ancient Guide to Creative Thinking. And the author, as well as the translator uh, of this book, is my guest today. He's a very distinguished uh, British classicist. I think all distinguished classicists are British. Um, his name is uh, Darmond uh, Angor, uh, Armand Dangor, not Darmond Angor, Armand Dangor. He is, as I said, the author of How to Innovate. Uh, and he's talking to me from his home uh, in North London, just near Swiss Cottage. Uh, Armand, welcome. Uh, it's eureka moment. Um, you talk a lot about eureka moments in your book. What is it about the Greeks that made them such great innovators? Actually, I was interested in your introduction because it wasn't an invention of the color red as such. I mean, clearly, uh, you might expect to hear that someone found a pigment of that kind. But in this case, in the case of red figure pottery, as it's called, what the potter, who may have been called Andocades, did is instead of placing black pigment on top of earthenware, which is a, a naturally reddish color, 
he realized that what you could do is paint the whole thing in black and then leave out the bits that you wanted to remain looking like earthenware. So that's really what we've done here. It's a kind of, you know, the, the photographic negative of uh, what had been done for over 100 years earlier, the so-called black figure pottery. And that is one example of how one innovates. So it's actually a very nice one. It's not a story I tell in my book. But it, what it is simply doing is reversing. So what I've done in my book is I've looked at the way the ancient Greeks were innovative. And I've tried to distill from the stories of ancient Greek innovation what the principles were. And one of the main principles is indeed reversal, doing the opposite of what has always been done. So the example I actually talk about in my book is in warfare, where for centuries, the greatest fighters of the Greek uh, nations, of the Greek uh, city-states, were the Spartans. Everybody knows about the Spartan warrior ethos, and the Spartans trained. So they trained incessantly from youth. So inevitably, whenever they were in a pitched battle, and the hoplite battles were, the heavy armed infantry battles, involved pitched battles on a, on a level playing, and whenever the Spartans were involved in those clashes, they won. So they had a reputation for being invincible. But the reason they won is they were very well trained. And there was a kind of formal way in which the Greeks fought. They put their best fighters on the right flank of their phalanx. And the best fighters would then push through the opposing phalanx on the left side, which is obviously the weaker side of their opponents. And once they pushed through, and the sooner they pushed through, they could then roll up the line. They could turn and attack the rest of the phalanx from behind. So, of course, the Spartans always won because they pushed through on the right flank with their superbly trained fighters. They pushed through against a weaker group. So and your uh, book, um, and this was one of the great stories and features in this new book, How to Innovate, uh, focuses on the kind of innovation which reinvents warfare. Uh, you use, uh, I think, uh, um, some some writing from uh, Diodorus um, of, of of Sicily. Uh, his um, his historic uh, his universal history uh, to talk about. Um, sorry, to talk about um, uh, the Battle of Leuctra. Uh, correct me uh, if I'm wrong. And the way in which Dionysius of Syracuse essentially reinvented warfare. Is that fair? Uh, as, uh, as, uh, as essentially uh, a contrarian, he, he changed the rules, but he didn't change the nature of things. Is that fair, Armin? Uh, yeah, except you conflated two stories. So the man who did the contrarian warfare was a Theban called Epaminondas. And he put his fighters on the weaker flank, his best fighters, so that the Spartans didn't break through right, right. and he caused mayhem and he won that battle against I did pretty well, Armin, for, for did really well. The other story... the two stories, but we're on the right track, right? What yeah. you're saying is that um, invention, um, innovation in Greece was in some ways similar today where it, it required the breaking of the rules. When I was reading this, it actually, uh, I, I thought of um, an interview I'd done recently with a man called Max Chafkin, a, a local journalist 
who's written a biography of Peter Thiel, one of the leading venture capitalists and entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, and he called it the contrarian. So there's a sort of, there's a, there's a quality of antiquity to, to, to Thiel and his contrarianness, uh, which Absolutely. I think Thiel would actually appreciate because he's a little bit more erudite than the typical entrepreneur venture capitalist out here. Yeah, I think that contrarianism is one of the mechanisms. It's a very common one. You're right about Peter Thiel. Warren Buffett said something similar. He says, do the opposite of what people are doing when you're buying shares. You know, obviously, you have to buy at the right time, but you do the opposite of what the rest of the world are doing and you make a fortune. So, but that's just one of the principles. Uh, the other, I, I actually make four all together. But others involve, for example, cross-fertilizing, two very disparate ideas or two things that seem to be unconnected and putting them together. And most of modern innovation, actually, is exactly that. It's finding ways of doing something that we've always done. So it's a, it's a, it's a kind of intellectual technology. eclecticism. The, the man who dominates your book is a man who dominates many books on, on antiquity, um, Aristotle. Was he, and you, you have a section on Aristotle's politics and an, a section on Aristotelian physics, so he was both an authority on science and on politics. Was he the quintessential example of um, an Athenian who was eclectic, who combined many different disciplines? He was totally unique. <laughs> so first, he wasn't an Athenian. He, he came from up north. He came down to Athens. Um, from Stagira in the north of, of Greece, but um, but he, he lived. There, but he, he sort of uh, his brand, if you like, like to use an ugly word, is associated with Athens. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but he also travelled around the Greek world, and he was extraordinary because not only was he a logician, he invented logic. Uh, he was a, an ethical philosopher. So he, you know, Aristotle's Ethics is one of the great texts about ethics and, and how to live. He was a scientist above all. I mean, um, a, a namesake of mine, not many people called Armand in the world, but a man called Armand-Marie Leroy, who's a, um, a, a botanist and zoologist and uh, uh, biologist, uh, wrote a book called Aristotle, uh, The Lagoon, The Man Who Invented Science. Um, it's set in the lagoon uh, in, in an island where Aristotle did a lot of botanical investigation. The man who invented science. I mean, that is an extraordinary accolade. How did he invent science? He said, you've got to investigate. He was the founder of a truly empirical uh, way of looking at the world, at animals, at flora and fauna. He wrote millions of words about all that, as well as analyzing political constitutions, as well as writing about ethics and so on. So this is a man of extraordinary range. Uh, and someone who inherited his philosophical ideas to some extent from his teacher, Plato, who in turn inherited his from Socrates, but innovated at every turn. And one of the yeah, great it's interesting that you bring up Socrates. You're, many people will know that you're the author of a, of a wonderful book, Socrates in Love. Socrates isn't in this volume. Do you see him as an innovator? He was an innovator, hugely, but he didn't present himself as such. He presented himself as someone who wanted to investigate what the good life was because the philosophers who preceded him 
we're interested in things like what is the world made of and you know what are the material basis of reality but he said look the most important question in our lives is how should we live but then plato writes about socrates socrates left no philosophical writings so it's very difficult to separate plato from socrates although plato puts all his philosophical ideas in the mouth of socrates clearly what Socrates did was different from what Plato does. And so it's hard to say Socrates did A, B, and C. Was was Plato an innovator? I mean, he invented a whole... I mean, did he invent philosophy? I mean, he took yes, Socrates' I mean, I ideas yes. and, 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 and founded the very idea of philosophy, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, he did because he wrote it down. I mean, you could say he wrote down what Socrates had taught him, but I think Plato was the great innovator, first of all, he wrote it down at vast length and in great detail. Then he founded a school, the Academy, to teach the subject and to perpetuate it. And he came up with a lot of original ideas of his own, which may or may not have anything to do with what Socrates originally thought. And he did so in a form, the dialogue form. So Plato effectively invented the philosophical dialogue. There are some possible predecessors that we know about, but not of this sort of level of very deep investigation and questioning of what goodness is, what justice is, what virtue is, what knowledge is. These extraordinarily huge questions. And Plato certainly innovated, Socrates innovated, Plato innovated, Aristotle. So it's an amazing succession. You know, it's no good saying X was the teacher of Y, therefore Y does the same as X. Quite the opposite. Great teachers mean that they produce students who contradict, who change and who innovate on what they have said and thought. Uh, Armand, um, I made a, a movie pre-COVID. I went to Athens. It was called How to Fix Democracy. And we went, my film crew and I, to Athens to, to rethink how we can fix the current state of democracy in the, in the world and its shift towards authoritarianism. Very similar things, I think, were going on in, 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 in Aristotle's uh, antiquity. And we talked about resurrecting principles of the lottery, of the polis. A lot of people are writing about that these days. I interviewed a woman called uh, Ellen Landemore, political philosopher at Yale. You translated uh, parts of Aristotle's politics for this book, How to Innovate. What political lessons did you draw from, from, from Aristotle? How can his, his politics teach us about innovation in political sphere. You know, Silicon Valley's done a great job reinventing technology, but democracy seems to be languishing and it seems to require innovation. That's a very big question. But one of the things that Aristotle says is that we should be careful about it. We should be careful about innovating because he says in the uh, arts and skills, innovation is clearly a good thing. So you don't want to do the same kind of music, the same kind of art the same kind of carpentry or whatever it is. Uh, but he says in, um, in, in thinking about constitutional change, you need to be careful because sometimes he says it's better, even if something isn't quite right, to preserve the habit of doing uh, the thing that the state requires. Because if you don't, he says, you could it could lead to anarchy. It could lead to no rules being uh, obeyed because... It just seems that one has to change things every so often. So 
that's one thing. He's quite conservative about political innovation. You might say almost Burkean, you know, Edmund Burke said, you know, change should be gradual. It shouldn't, he didn't approve of revolutions. And Aristotle, very similarly, wouldn't have approved of, of revolution. But um, so that's one, one side of Aristotle. But uh, the other is that he was immensely analytical about different ways of running the state. So the passages that I translated in the book have a go at people who said, look, we ought to have, for example, a communistic sort of state. And Aristotle says, but, you know, the problem is if everybody owns uh, the same amount of property, it, you know, you lose incentives, you, don't, you have people who don't have a stake in, in improving things. So what he has done is given us tools for thinking about how to critique current and proposed constitutions, because that's the way he saw it. These were constitutions for the independent city-state. So tools of criticism lead to innovation. This is wrong. Let's get it better. Uh, I mean, we talked at the beginning about this eureka moment, at least according to the New York Times. Of course, we associate the word eureka with Archimedes of Syracuse. And you try to make sense, try to retell the story of Archimedes and this so-called eureka moment, eureka moment being this moment where you sit up from the bath or wherever you're sitting and, 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 and innovate. Uh, what, 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 how do you rewrite the, the story of, of, of eureka and how to innovate or at least reinterpret or re-suggest how it began? Well, I felt that if I was writing a book on innovation, I should certainly demonstrate that I can innovate. And to innovate successfully is to say something new that is also correct and true. So I haven't just invented this new story. I discovered, actually, a new way of thinking about the so-called Eureka moment. So the traditional story is that the tyrant Hieron gave Aristotle a crown, and he said it's supposed to be made of gold, but I think that the craftsman has pilfered some of the gold and adulterated it by putting in some silver. And so you've got to tell me whether or not this crown, intricate object, is made of pure gold or made of gold and silver. And how do you do that without using the old methods that the Greeks use or anyone would use to assay a metal, which would be to actually try and, and, and scrape bits off. So Arist Archimedes, sorry, the story is Archimedes goes to the bathhouse, he sits in a bath, and as he sits, he sees the water rising, and he realizes that you can measure the density of an object by how much water it displaces. So if something that weighs 10 pounds, let's say, a, a crown or whatever, was made of wood, obviously it would be a much bigger object, it would displace a lot more water. So if it was made of gold, it would displace a lot less water, and if it was made of a, a, an element which was less dense than gold, like silver, then it would clearly dis displace a little more water than if it was made of pure gold. Now, the problem is you can't imagine that, he, you know, the story is that he did that and he, he realised that the crown was made of adulterated metal, but, you know, it wouldn't work in practice. So it was a mystery. Why tell the story about something that could never have actually worked? There's no way even today, unless you had the very, very precise instruments, you could tell the difference between a gold crown and one that was made of gold and silver. You know, how do you tell that the density of silver is slightly less dense than gold? Well, you know. So it's a principle. That's what, you, what the Eureka moment is about. You know, the story is 
having sank in the bath and watched the water rise, he jumped out shouting, Eureka, I've got it. And what he had got was the principle of possibly discovering the density of an object. But actually, that was already known. There are lots of stories which suggest that there was nothing new about that principle. And then I was reading some a, a later Greek text by uh, a writer called Athenaeus, who lived in Egypt, uh, under when it was a Greek city, uh, Nocritus in Egypt. And Athenaeus tells this amazing story, which goes on for pages. And this was the story in the Diphonosis, right? In the Daiphnosophists, yes. Which that, means, yeah, I apologize for Yes, it's a very difficult term. What it means is clever people having conversations over dinner. They have the Daiphnosophists, and they have this conversation. They say, look, there were this huge boat, one of them says. I've just read a book about it, and he quotes the author, Moskian, and he says, Moskian writes this about this huge boat that Archimedes was asked, was commissioned to design by Hieron. And he goes into enormous detail about this boat, which took thousands of people, which had on board, it had a gymnasium and a temple and colonnades. And, yeah, um, and this was called the, the, the Syracusia, right? Yeah, it was called the Syracusia. So it was this massive boat and uh, it had uh, weapons on board and all the rest of it. And it struck me, it was my Eureka moment, that actually this was the commission that led to the Eureka moment, because the Eureka moment is, how does such a massive object float? If he was commissioned to build this boat, which was like 50 times bigger than most standard boats, Archimedes had to persuade Hieron, uh, or had to persuade himself, that if he was going to build it, the thing would float. So how does he do that? Whether he gets in the bath and thinks about it or not, he comes up with a principle of buoyancy. And the principle of buoyancy is still called the Archimedes principle. So it seems to me that it was nothing to do with measuring the density of a crown. It was all to do with working out how something floats. And of course, a super tanker can float because the amount of water it displaces is heavier than the, than, you know, the bit that's in the water. So it doesn't matter how big an object is, but you had to work out that principle. And you're, I think the Eureka moment when Archimedes did so. So that's yeah, it's, it's great stuff, and, and 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 you are a brilliant scholar, Armand, and it's full of your remarkable scholarly uh, insights, how to innovate. Uh, as as we began, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, I'm in Silicon Valley, um, and the Greeks, it seemed, invented two terms which are very valuable in our social media age, in our innate, uh, in our age of radical technological disruption. The first was the concept of hubris, and the second, the legend of Narcissus in our age of narcissism. In other words, what I'm suggesting is the Greeks were, of course, great innovators, but they are also very good at warning us about the excesses of innovation, weren't they? They certainly were, and as you rightly say, hubris was uh, um, considered to be you know, the kind of excess that led to divine punishment. So, um, in a way, when I said earlier that Aristotle was conservative about politics, he is, he is conforming to the Greek view that you know, nothing in excess, don't overdo stuff, because there's a danger in that. Uh, and narcissism, of course, is also a, a different kind of warning. If all you're interested in is yourself, then you're not looking out, you're not taking a perspective on things. It's... It's, it's it's uncannily, uncannily relevant, relevant, though, today, isn't it? Both 
the notion of hubris to men like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, who are quite literally getting close to flying to the sun. And of course, this idea of narcissism, you can't pick up a newspaper or, or, or open the internet these days without seeing stories about Mark Zuckerberg and this epidemic of narcissism, which Facebook and Instagram have, have created. What do you what? think? I, I know it's a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I mean, if, if Aristotle or Plato or Socrates was to get a glimpse of what we're up to 2,500 years later, would they be outraged, shocked? Yeah, they'd be deeply depressed. I think, first of all, they would see <laughs> the indications everywhere of excess, of hubristic behavior, of, uh, uh, as you say, of narcissism, people entirely interested in themselves, interested in superficialities such as, you know, celebrity culture. And, and of course, a whole generation in the world of younger people now encouraged, as you say, by social media to become hugely narcissistic, hugely entitled, not to realize that there's a world out there which has serious problems, serious ongoing problems. And of course, I'm talking about, you know, the privileged Western world, as it were. But yeah, I don't think Plato and Aristotle would be in, at all impressed by our social culture or by our political culture. They would come back, of course, to a world which is now facing perhaps its most serious existential crisis, the crisis of global warming. We had the um, um, historian of antiquity, not of so much of Greece, but of Rome, Kyle Harper on the show recently. He's written a wonderful book. I'm sure you know his work about um, the environmental crisis of, of, of Rome. Did a similar thing happen when it came to innovation in Greece? Uh, what was the, the Greek concept of nature and innovation and respecting nature? Uh, um, so it wasn't quite the same because, um, first of all, I mean, the Greek world, as we talk about it, uh, was several hundred years before the Roman world. Uh, so eventually in the second century BC, Greece became a province of Rome, and from then on, the Roman world, such as uh, Kyle talks about, uh, and the Greek world were, were more or less the same world. But before that, in the earlier periods which um, Hellenists study, th those who are interested in the Greek world, uh, it was a, a much less united, unified, large um, uh, unit. Uh, so uh, the Greek city-states, they were individual cities like Athens and Corinth and Thebes and Sparta, and then the, the islands and the cities across in Asia Minor, like Smyrna and, uh, and the islands like Chios. This, this conglomeration of independent, politically independent city-states, which they call the polis, didn't have that kind of sense that they live in a world which they were all responsible for looking after. So interestingly, Plato does talk about the deforestation of Athens. So that was going on at the time and had gone on for centuries before. Uh, Athens was a very deforested land because you know, they chopped it all down to build houses and all the rest of it and, and for firewood. So he even notices then that there is uh, what you might call an environmental change. And that is not something that uh, you might find in other parts of the Greek world, which would have been richer. So 
on the one hand, they didn't have that broad perspective on, say, something like uh, environmental disaster, uh, because they were all very uh, independent and discreet, these city-states. Um, and, and on the other hand, the way they thought about nature was very different from the way we do. So essentially, it was quite religious. I mean, one of their thinkers, Thales of Miletus, said, everything is full of gods. So trees could have divine elements to them. You know, there, there were spirits in the trees, naiads and dryads. You know, the rivers were considered to be gods and goddesses. Right. And you, you, you talk, you, you have this quote at the beginning of the book from Democritus, thinking new thoughts every day. There's a kind of religious quality to that, isn't there? Yeah, and um, the idea of novelty being part of religion is, is also part of the Greek uh, uh, set of thinking because, the, you know, sing to, to the Lord a new song. You get it in the Hebrew Bible, but you also get it in uh, Greek where they say, you know, novelty is something that the gods need us. So, But what sort of novelty? Something that will keep things fresh. So, But ironically, uh, the, the, the Trinity, the Holy Trinity of Socrates, Plato and Aristotle were themselves rewriting the Homeric tradition, the Homeric um, ontology of the gods. So they themselves weren't starting from scratch either. Absolutely. Nothing starts from scratch. So that's uh, one of the main points that Aristotle makes in his physics, that actually you can't expect something to emerge from nothing. This was one of the great philosophical conundrums. Uh, does that mean that, you know, because they didn't have an idea of the Big Bang, but they did feel that something has to be continuous with something else. You can't just have innovation out of the blue. Uh, it is based on something that already exists. So, um, of course, Plato and, and his fellow philosophers had a long tradition preceding them of thought and writing, whether it was in, in, in mythical terms in Homer or in other uh, philosophical uh, writings, such as those of the so-called pre-Socratic philosophers. Uh, Armand, last week we had your Cambridge equivalent in some ways, Mary Beard. I guess she's a historian of Rome. You're a historian of Greece on the show. Uh, she has a new book out about what we can learn from images of Roman autocrats. They were, of course, all male. She's um, um, uh, a legendary a feminist theorist, historian. Uh, all the people you've talked about as innovators here in uh, Athens are, of course, male. Uh, what about the role of women in Greece in antiquity when it comes to innovation? Were they just um, spectators to all this or did they play a part? Well, I'm glad you asked because um, I recently wrote a book on Socrates, which is as much about a woman called Aspasia as it is about Socrates. So it's this one, Socrates in love. And uh, Socrates, we are told, fell in love with Aspasia of Miletus, who was the most extraordinary intellectual. She was a teacher. She was the wife of Pericles, the leading citizen of Athens, for about 15 or 16 years, during which time she was said to have been a huge influence on him and indeed to have written his great funeral speech that is preserved in Thucydides because she was a mistress of eloquence or a master of eloquence. So I think she is one of the unsung women of the ancient world. Uh, one of the reasons she's unsung is because 
the comic poets, who were the kind of, you know, spitting image of the day, called her all sorts of terrible things like prostitute and um, brothel keeper because she was such a clever and influential woman. This is a, essentially a misogynistic patriarchal society. And she wasn't any of those things. But centuries of male historians have taken them seriously. But if you look at the serious historical writers of the time, Plato and Xenophon, they talk a lot about Aspasia and not once do they say she was any of those things. They call her a respected teacher. And there's a whole dialogue of Plato in which she's teaching Socrates how to give a speech. And it's the speech she's already taught to Pericles. So I, have, I think I've tried to rehabilitate Aspasia. There's a lot more we can say about her. She's a very important woman. The other important woman in Greek, uh, in Greek uh, culture is Sappho, one of the greatest singer-songwriters around 600 BC. And, you know, thank God we have the poetry of Sappho. It's, it's marvellous. It was hugely influential. Between Sappho and Aspasia, we, two, we have two extraordinarily brilliant women, one of whom was recognised as such, Sappho, the other who wasn't. And of course, there must have been so many others who unfortunately remain nameless. But I think we can start to understand that women were not just completely um, you know, pointless in, in Greek society, even if they were essentially rather oppressed by it. Well, this new book, uh, How to Innovate, uh, An Ancient Guide to Creative Thinking, is selected, translated, and introduced by Armand. Uh, um, it is a, a really interesting take on innovation and antiquity. Congratulations, Armand, on the book. As I said at the beginning, you're talking to me from Belsize Park in North London in these strange times. What else? Uh, you're also a distinguished musician. What are you listening to? What are you watching? What are you reading these days, Armand, to make sense of our complicated world, our world which is both um, challenged uh, by innovation but also offers, I guess, the solution to so many of our problems? Well, um, as regards music, I'm, I'm a cellist. I play in a, a piano trio, and I have had enormous pleasure with my trio uh, learning all kinds of uh, parts of the repertoire which I hadn't learned before. And that involves listening to a lot of great performances by um, musicians such as the, the Beaux-Arts Trio, but also some great modern trios um, uh, playing anything from Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky to Beethoven, uh, Shostakovich, Ravel. They all wrote fabulous music for this fa fantastic combination, I should say, piano, cello and violin. And I'm very lucky to have an ongoing trio. Yeah, well, you know, we had uh, Dmitry Sitkovsky, another London-based musician on the show uh, a few months ago. So I'm sure you know him. And what are you reading, Armin, these days? I recently picked up a book by Martin Amos. It's called Inside Story. And it's a kind of autobiography. I think Martin Amos is a fabulous uh, novelist. I think he's brilliant in all kinds of ways. A great critic as well. And so I wanted to read this to just to enjoy his style, but also to learn a little bit more about him. So that's that's on my bedside at the moment, along with piles of academic books, um, uh, which I'm uh, plowing through for various reasons. I'm preparing to write another book myself on cultural life in the ancient world. Well, fantastic. You are the author of How to Innovate, the new book. People will also know you as the author of Socrates in Love and the Greeks and the new, which in, in many ways, this new book uh, is an extension of. Congratulations, Armand, on the book. I'd love to have you back on the show again.
to talk more about your new work. It's always nice to talk to such an erudite man who can put um, your, 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 your wisdom into accessible language. Thank you so much and keep well. Thank you very much indeed. That was great fun talking to you.